So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Why are they coming back? Why is that relationship, you know, reinvigorated after whatever reasons? And consistently, it's they come back and they're like, you guys are consistent. You know, they can sleep at night. That's why I'm, I'm a big proponent of, don't get me wrong, uh, you know, I'm budget conscious too. Everyone needs to be when you run your own, like you, when you run a business, you run a budget, you have to be budget conscious. Having said that, it's about putting the value and the investment in the right places. What's an example of the right place for you? Hey, this is where we decided, this is where... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got a fellow Canadian, Kathy Chang. Kathy, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Yay, oh Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the business that you are the president of. Okay, so Redwood Classics Apparel, we are a third generation apparel manufacturer that's proudly producing on Canadian soil. We really help better brands and influential designer brands come to market by really focusing on quality, quick to market, and our collaborative approach in terms of how we do product development and and bulk production. And then together as partners, we allow our brand partners to really focus on what they're great at. And I'd like to think that we're able to focus on what we think we're pretty good at, which is producing high quality apparels. So kind of tell us where you fit compared to other folks in the space. In terms of where we fit compared to other folks in the space, I would say the base of the business started off as a contracting company, a sewing contracting company in 1988 with five people and 10 machines as a family business. My father, the founder of the business, his brother and sister, they got together and started this small sewing contracting company with five people only. And that's all they did was sewing contracting. Over the years, they expanded and they scaled. And part of the scaling strategy, I look back now, I don't think I thought of this in the beginning, but as I look back now, it's it's really scaling top line through our supply chain and our value chain on the back end. So we went from just being a sewing contractor to being able to do cut and sew and packing and quality assurance. And then, you know, as we expanded in the late 90s, we were at a point where we were directly employing close to 500 people. And as we expanded, the value chain was also, okay, we were knitting fabric. So we ended up owning and buying an, an, a knitting facility. We had embroider, we had screen printing. So we became a real big vertical manufacturer, I would say, at that point. But, you know, China joins WTO, quotas get lifted, and 
everybody goes offshore. And by that time, you're, you're, you know, how do you compete since to a dollar? The business landscape, unfortunately, just was not able to support the infrastructure we had scaled to. And then from there on, you know, it was 2008, which was the last financial recession. And I think Darwism at its best happened. And the brands and the, the, the factories, or I would say competitors in our space that had a reason to be around, they, they stuck around. And for us, it was really challenging because we had expanded and had the scale and infrastructure, which means a lot of responsibilities and bigger budgets and more, more families. And we just, the business landscape just really couldn't support it anymore. So it was a pretty intimate decision is a family decision, but also a business decision as a family business. Do we retire like most textile families have? And they're really, you know, especially in Toronto, we have this Toronto fashion district, which is really all clubs and, and bars nowadays, right? But in the middle of, of Toronto downtown, it used to be factories. There used to be production that was happening downtown. So do we follow suit to those, you know, fellow manufacturers and retire and get into another business or do we humbly restructure and start all over? And my dad asked me to be his business partner and the decision was, you know, we're going to do this all over again. So we humbly restructured with 40 people in 2009 and that was in my really bad math, which <laughs> would be 12 years ago because it's 2021 now. And really proud to say we've we've continued to scale and and really look at our value chain and how can we follow our our brand partner's journey and bring solutions to our relationship where we can both grow together. You know, that would also include, you know, we started knitting. I mean, innovation, people think of innovation and often it's thought of as tech for us. I think innovation doesn't necessarily have to be tech. It could be your mindset, just your go-to business strategy, go-to-market strategy. And so I would say over the last um, 12 years where our growth has been is on the value chain aspect of it, where we're now actually bringing in yarn by the container. We're actually doing commission knit around within 100 miles radius of our factory, approximately 65% of the raw material we consume at our factory level now is knitted within a hundred miles radius of us. We're just actually about, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just a, just a quick question. Forgive people concept, more of a, a context. When you say a brand partner, who's that? A brand partner would be a brand, like a retail brand, let it be a clothing brand. So, and I guess I apologize. It's it's more of a cultural language too. For me personally in our business, I don't like to call our clients clients because it is not a one-way street. You know, in order for us to be successful, they need to be successful and vice versa. And so it's taken me a number of years, but that's something that I, I was quite deliberate and intentional in calling our brand partners, brand partners, and not our clients. So to give your listeners some context, we would be like the cookie maker or the baker that's baking for Mr. Christie and I don't know, Oreos or whatnot, right? So, but you're, the the common denominator is, is just baked goods. And so for us, our common denominator is apparel, knitted apparel specifically, but we make it for other brands as well as in 2009, when I became my dad's business partner, we also launched our own brand, which is the Redwood Classics brand. So I have so many questions, but <laughs> let's start with this. Coming from an entrepreneurial family, mm -hmm. how do you feel 
what kind of things about your the way you grew up do you think gave you an advantage for what you're doing now? Well, I will say this, above and beyond being from an entrepreneurial family, I think it's there's all this debate about are you socialized? characteristics of, of, of entrepreneurial spirits are they is it socialized or is it genetics and I'm still out for debate on that one I'm not sure but both my parents have a lot of grit but I also believe it's a byproduct of their upbringing and my upbringing you know your typical immigrant family that came to Canada with absolutely nothing I remember you know going to school by myself as young as four years old, like, you know, walking myself. And I was a latchkey kid at the age of five. I grew up with my dad having three jobs. So, so I would say that it's, I don't know if the grit, I was born with the grit more than it was byproduct of my environment in growing up. And you know what relative, it's all relative relatively. I think I'm very fortunate. I, my upbringing was, was very, it's had its challenges, but it's, what are you comparing that to? Compared to third world countries, I mean, it was oasis. So it's about perspectives from that aspect. And I so, didn't really answer your question. <laughs> no, it's okay. Was it your parents that came over? Grandparents? What? My parents. Yeah, my parents and myself. So we came. You... I I came to Canada when I we came to Canada in the late seventies. So I was four years old when I came to Canada, didn't speak English at all. I was in ESL up until grade six while learning French and English at the same time in a household where both my parents were working all the time. I didn't have, I don't have any siblings. So I remember part of the reason why I'm in ES, I was in ESL for so long. And and the analysis from the education system was it's probably because she has no one to speak to. Like I had nowhere to practice it. It was only at school. And while I'm learning a new language and, you know, at home, I have no one to really be able to practice those languages with. So yeah, it was really interesting because I was in ESL, which is English as a second language until grade six. But the same year, I also applied and got into French extended because Canada is a bilingual country, French and English. So I learned both languages, I guess, during that that time frame of, you know, when I first came to Canada and, and then up until grade six and then grade seven, I got into extended French. Don't ask me to speak French right now, though, because it's really bad. You need to practice. Yeah. So, that's funny. I moved from northern Alberta to Edmonton about halfway through grade one. And I missed getting into French immersion that my, my cousins were in and outside Edmonton, yeah. but, but they were in it. And actually my brother-in-law, he, their family moved up from Peru, but went to Montreal first. So he, oh. first he went to, first he went to like mostly French and some English. Then they yeah. came out to Alberta and he had to do the flip-flop, you know? And how and, did uh, they find that, that experience, like your experience versus your, your, your cousin's experience with that flip-flopping? So, okay. So it's my brother-in-law who came up from Peru. Okay. And, sorry, and learned, learned French. But my cousins, my cousins who did French immersion, I think they thought it was an advantage in certain ways. The one who went to fashion school out at Ryerson near you, she, before that she had modeled across Europe and, uh-huh. and that had gone really well for her to speak. French. Yeah. So when I was in grade eight, since we're Canadians here talking, we won't call it the eight. <laughs> When I was in grade eight, they packed up and went to France for a year because all the, you know, the five kids had been in French immersion. And yeah, yeah. I was, anyways, I still think that was cool. Okay, and, that's really cool too. Yeah. And since then, like, so the one she, she modeled quite a bit in Europe and that helped. And two of the others played pro volleyball in Europe and that helped oh. when they went on different contracts and stuff. And, but I will say like an, another one of the kids 
feels like, you know, going into their nursing career, they're behind and like their English scores were bad. You know, their language arts, we would call mm -hmm. it in Canada, right? Yeah. And so they struggled with just like language arts anyways. Yeah. And by adding the French on top, it she really looks back and feels like that impeded her math skills and some of these other skills that ended up being a real struggle in nursing school later. So it's a bit of a two-edged sword in their, in their case. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that because I think I've become your typical, what expected tiger mom here. And I've got my kids in, um, we speak English at home. My husband is Chinese as well, but his, his, he was born in, in Canada and I don't think he spoke Cantonese or kept the native language as strong, at least in terms of verbalizing, in terms of comprehension, it's still fairly strong. But because of that, and I want to make sure that we can still maintain our culture, I've made it a point to try to speak to them in Cantonese. I encourage our grandparents to do the same, but I've put my kids in learning Mandarin from a very young age, like when they were just a couple of years old. So we've continued to do that. But I, you know, speaking of languages, math is a language, music is a language. So I, I just think it's all about perspectives and how you approach language and, and really how you communicate through it. Yeah. Now, that's a bit of a tangent there, but. <laughs> no, that's okay. But, but I want to, obviously you've spoken about some of the challenges. I want to talk about any of the advantages you feel like you got by growing up that way. Oh, lots of advantages. That's what I try to share with my kids all the time is, is the exposure. I think it's allowed me to experience more. I think if you embrace diversity in your life, it really opens up your world. I have found personally that the the as as our business has developed and I've grown both personally and professionally, as I've embraced diversity in not necessarily in age, color, but even the industries, the different industries and the different entrepreneurs that I've met, I'm able to take little learnings here and there, right? And apply it and and kind of translate it into my own world. So going back to your question, you know, how has that upbringing helped me? It's it's helped me phenomenally and that's what I want my children to understand is it's not about the now. These are all seeds that we're planting for the future and who knows if you're ever going to need it, but it never hurts, right, to learn more. So, you know, I didn't realize that I was a lifetime learner, I'll be honest, until the last few years. And, and that's because someone pegged me as a lifetime learner. I was like, really? I thought I was just always really nosy and curious. I didn't see myself as really a learner. And now I'm now that we can succinctly say that and I can categorize myself as a lifetime learner, I'd like to download that to, to those around me and people that I know or, or that are open to learning. Yeah. There's so many good things you covered there. You know, it reminds me, the episode I did this morning is this guy who's got tens of millions of dollars of real estate. And one of the reasons that he has done so well, he feels like, and, and listening to a story, I completely agree, is even though he grew up in a real estate family, he he went and, he went and spent some time on Wall Street and got more of a finance approach. And yeah. then he got heavily into tech. And he built like five tech companies for the real estate industry. And he's just brought that level of like operational intensity to an asset class that like, you know, let's face it, real estate's so great, you can be kind of lazy and still make money. Right? Yeah, you play your cards right. Yeah, definitely. But he brings like this, this mindset of like, we're not just warehousing assets. We are an operating business. Like our business needs to be worth more than just the sale value of the buildings we own. And right. so he's brought that kind of like 
real intense focus on key performance indicators like a tech company to the way he runs his real estate portfolio and has really outperformed as a result. And it's interesting because no amount of real estate expertise would have drilled that into him, right? Yeah. And I also find like if he just stuck to real estate and I know there are some people that are in one industry and that's what they want to stay in. But then how do you cross industry and learn? Like, how do you take your fundamentals and apply it to different industries? I think that's what's been really interesting. And part of our growth journey has been that really we're in the fashion industry. You could say, you know, we're in the supply chain of fashion. But one of the growth marketplaces that Redwood Classics has experienced over the years is in this secret industry called promotional products. Have you ever heard of this industry? Like we just think of it as marketing, but you know, pre-COVID promotional product industry is like a $26 billion industry. That's a secret little industry. And so that's what we were able to do. I actually launched, we launched the factory brand Redwood Classics in that promotional product space. And why? Because we took the the fundamentals of, of apparel making and all of that, but I noticed that there was a niche. There wasn't a lot of products that were of high quality. And when we say quality, we mean like retail, you know, designer brand quality. It's all relative. There was quality maybe sufficient for a baseline for that industry. But I'd like to think we came into the game and we just elevated and created another bar. With that was is something very niche because it was all made in North America. That was unique. And you got to understand when we launched this, it was in the midst of fast fashion. People really didn't care where the products were coming from. It was the cheapest thing that they could get. They weren't thinking about slow fashion. So I think that's a great example where if you become more open-minded and and you're willing to diversify, not just in terms of your everyday and your personal growth and, and your professional growth, but then in your business mindset and your business growth. That's something that I think can be helpful. I mean, another part of it now is you're right. I'm, I'm also thinking, you know what? We're an apparel manufacturer, but we're also in tech. I mean, we're the first in Canada that's adopted this sustainable all over print. It's a technology that is new to the marketplace. And we've integrated as part of our value chain in our end-to-end solution provider as an apparel manufacturer. And just so you understand, it's digital print is... Digital print is 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 something new to the industry. It's a sustainable all over digital print because we're actually printing on rolls of fabric. And currently what's available in the marketplace, there's a lot of what we call sublimation, which is heavy on plastic. Like you need polyester, which is essentially plastic. But with all the environmental concerns, which we should be right now, how do we minimize the impact and damaging the earth? And unless I get out of the whole manufacturing and apparel and fashion space altogether, I need to integrate and we want to work towards a better future together. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we've invested in this brand new technology. Again, first in Canada, my understanding, according to the manufacturer that we've bought the technology from, there is less than a handful of full service apparel manufacturers in all of North America that even has this technology. And now we've integrated that into our value chain on the back end, going back to the originals, like kind of how, how do we scale and, and how did we grow? We were just really being customer focus or brand partner focus where we're trying to find solutions as we follow their journey. How can we support that? And really taking a collaborative approach in terms of it too. Yeah. You know, you talk about being being made in Canada. And one of the things that's fascinating to me, so we own a consulting firm, it's graystokeadvisors.com. Yeah. And it's 
I have these like operational excellence, like lean Toyota production system experts who like, you know, they did that at Ford and GE and these big fancy companies, right? For years, decades. And now, now we like teach classes to Air Canada and US to Postal Service and Charles Schwab and all these big companies, right? And what's interesting is even though I'm not like a real expert in that stuff, I've hung around it for enough years that I can like, I can like sling enough lingo to kind of blend in. But, but I am fascinated. Like my inner investor is just fascinated. It's like this whole methodology of like make life less frustrating for the worker, eliminate the waste, the things customers aren't paying for and, and like let everybody bring their brain to work instead of just the boss. And it's like, you make more money and your employees like their jobs better. It's like the magical martial art for business. Yeah. You know? So to me, it's what's been so interesting is hearing about people who have taken that to such levels that they're onshoring manufacturing. I mean, like you think about, you know, I'm the first year of millennials. I was born in 1980, right? Everybody my age and younger, like we know, you know, quote unquote, no, you can't do manufacturing in North America, right? Because it won't make money, whatever. So it's fascinating for me to see these organizations that they tap into human ingenuity. They, they pursue lifelong learning, like you're talking about, yeah. and, and can outperform out overseas manufacturing by, by being different instead of yeah. doing, playing the same game as them, right? Yeah. I, I would love to hear what that looks like for you guys. Any examples of what you have to do different in order to, to compete? I would say, first and foremost, is really when we say quality, being consistent. I think consistency is key. There's a few things that people like. I don't, I think we undervalue the the value. Sorry, I'm just out of words right now. The value of, of being consistent. So consistency is key. Uh, being curious is key. And these are all like, you know, corporate culture kind of things, right? Consistency, curious, well, let, cautious. Yeah, let's talk about these. So, cause I hear consistency and I think, yeah, you know what? It's great to get a better deal on something unless you don't get what you ordered or unless it doesn't show up when you needed it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Don't value it until you're missing it. So identifying these these values before your journey, like before your customers think about it, right? Like, I would say that in the promotional product space, we were the first one to come to come to market and say everything here is made in Canada. And I'd go to trade shows. I remember my first trade show that I went to, and it went across Canada. And uh, nobody knew us. Nobody knew who we were. We were just as nobody. We still are not a big supplier. Don't get me wrong. But I, I would I would pass out my lookbooks and, and people would be like, what? It's made in Canada. I'd be like, yes, it's made in Canada. And they wouldn't believe us because it was just so different. Like everyone else was not made in Canada. And they would touch and feel and they'd be like, wow, are you sure? Because you can do made in Canada, but to deliver at this quality and the hand feel, it's rare. And again, I'm going to take back the embracing the diversity and, and looking at our the promo industry at that time and saying, what do we have that others don't? That's not in this marketplace. And we don't have to be the biggest. Like, that's the other thing is I don't believe we are greedy. We're not looking for the biggest margin. We're not looking for the the, you know, the biggest profit out of this, because that's not the reason why I became my dad's business partner. You know, I I became my dad's business partner because it hit me. I realized that I've had this remarkable life growing up as our factory scaled and our family business started doing well because of our makers, because of people, you know, and I feel like that's also, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no. I want to talk about that because I'm just going to go out on a, on a, on a limb here and say, I'm sure that your people are a big part. 
And, and I want to hear like, did you get different machinery? Is there different training? How are you guys able to produce at that quality and still meet the price point? I think a lot of it is experience, but it's also, you know, my father who manages production and operations, he's, he's got a sixth sense. I think he's just brilliant at what he does. And he's surrounded by a really strong team of production specialists, right? From our dye house manager who um, has experience in textiles as well and has helped us, you know, ramp up our commission knitting program to our seamstress. That's what I want to talk about because those other companies that went out of of business, their people Mm -hmm. were experienced until they were out of a job. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Right. So when you say help ramp up, help ramp up this part of the business, is it they're going and doing outreach or there, what does that look like in your industry? In the ramp up, I would say we come up with an idea and look within our, within our organization. Do we have that expertise? Do we have that skill set and take the risk and make the investment? You know, again, going back to our SAOP, our sustainable all over print, this digital technology, we're new at it. You know, we're not going to sit here and say, we're the expert. We know everything. We're figuring it out as well. But you know, we spent a good year and a half in R&D phase before we launched in the middle of COVID this year or uh, 2020. Why? Because we wanted to make sure that the quality that we put out there for this, you know, another line of business within our overall umbrella was meeting the same consistent quality, the consistency of what we're looking for and what our factory is well known for. Yeah. You are right that people, I feel like that's like the invisible thing. You only notice it once it's gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. one of my favorite authors, Richard Koch, he wrote the 80-20 principle. Okay. And he this genius guy, he built a consulting firm, sold it. And then he kind of used that like 80-20 Pareto principle stuff to turn like 16 million into like 300 million. Okay. With his investments. <laughs> but he, he talks about, we don't really have, we're not really like in a service business or a product business, according to him. We're in a time service business or a time product business. Yeah. And his point is like the best restaurant in town, you want to take your romantic partner to, Yeah. if it ends up being a four and a half hour wait, is that still the best restaurant in town tonight? Yeah. Right. And, but, but to your point, I think he's missing the bar. I I think consistency should be included in that. You know, there's a fast food chain down here. You know, I got to say, I don't feel like we really represent well when it comes to Mexican food in Canada. I think, (laughs) I think the breadcrumbs that gets passed off as ground beef at taco time is really sinful. Okay. <laughs> so I love being in the States where there's such good Mexican food, right? Yeah. Well, there's this chain here in Utah that the food is like so cheap. You'd think you were in Mexico. Nobody speaks English behind the counter, barely, you know, and it's really good, except at different locations, it'll be so hit and miss. And like all of a sudden, like half the salsa bar won't be there or like the green salsa will be like so hot. (laughs) My wife is like choking. You know what I mean? And like, so it's funny because it really, it really is such good food at a great price point, but that lack of consistency has cost them a lot of money over the years because of people who ask, like, we actually know it by like, (laughs) so it goes under three names, Alberto's, Rancheritos, and Beto's, okay? Depending where what location you are, it's got different signs. They got something huh. crazy with the franchising. How do you know and it's like, the same business then? Because the exact, because the menu is exactly the same. <laughs> okay. Like exactly the same, <laughs> except the pricing, okay? Like, <laughs> there's, okay, this is my nerdiness about Mexican food. I love the shredded beef hard tacos so much, okay? But uh-huh. in out by Park City, Utah, they're a dollar. And closer to the airport in Salt Lake, they're like 275. And you're like, 
It's the exact same product. And that's not like a margin. Like it's only a dollar whatever difference. But mm-hmm. as a margin, it's over 100% difference yeah. in like variation, right? And it's the same so restaurant like, chain? Yeah. And so what's funny is it's like, you know, Rosarito or Rancheritos Layton is like amazing. Okay. But Rancheritos Kaysville is like, eh, you know, huh. it's funny. So but it goes back to consistency, right? Like how do you, well, I can see if you're a high-end brand who wants like retail fashion quality merch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you show up to the big fancy event with your investors or with like the, the high-end client, like employees you're trying to wine and dine, right? Yeah. And it's like, everybody gets this amazing coat except so-and-so who's like sleeve isn't long, is the wrong length. You know, like yeah. one sleeve is short. Like that is the like 40 bucks on that coat or the 80 bucks on that coat is like all of a sudden the like, so somebody feeling shorted can be worth, can yeah. be such a bigger problem than $80 for a new coat, except it's too late. Cause that coat is six weeks away or whatever. Right. Yes, absolutely. It's consistency. I always say like, even with our brand partners, it's consistency on their design, consistency in their distribution methods and, and, and the service quality that they're having through that supply, you know, through that journey and then for us, what is the consistency that they're getting from us? Are they still getting the white glove service? Like for us right now, as, as a factory doing private label manufacturing, we actually have chosen not to onboard too many brands. It's a it's, it's actually quite selective. And the reason why we're doing it that, and, and we're very frank and open to a number of our brand partners or even new inquiries that come in, is because I want to make sure that as our brand partners have scaled and grown, and we're growing alongside with them, we don't overextend ourselves. that like, I think the short term would be like short sightedness would be, Hey, who doesn't want business? Like business is pounding at your door. It's taken us a lot of discipline to identify that and admit that maybe it's not the perfect timing and the perfect match at this point. It's not saying never, we're just saying not at this point. Because I don't think it's fair to all our other existing brand partners that have been by our side. You know, I think back in the very beginning, we went from 40 people and now we're, you know, we've almost tripled our headcount. We've definitely tripled our workspace. You know, we've expanded our value chain on the back end. We've extended actually our top line in terms of servicing different marketplaces. We've diversified. And I don't think it's fair if we take that away from those that have been with us from the very beginning. Well, you've been doing it very well because you made the female founders 100 on Inc. Magazine and some of these other (laughs) fun things. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I think my, my next, well, first, I don't think there's any of us business owners listening today who think, oh, I'm really bad at consistency, right? (laughs) But, but that doesn't mean, but we're also likely not as objective about ourselves, right? If you had any, if you had any questions for us, if we want to take a hard look in the mirror, yeah. And we want to think about, is our consistency at the level it could be? What What are some questions that would apply no matter what, what the industry? One of them was, I, I just thought is, do you know any competitors that would rate as higher consistency than I do? Right? That's, that's an immediate benchmark for me to think about, like, do yeah. I have, you know, do I have... You know what, Jet? I would lie if I said I came up with this whole consistency on my own. No, it's okay. <laughs> Obviously, it you didn't, be- right? I I would say it's through experience and over the last 12 years, as we've been growing and our marketplace has expanded, it's a lot of feedback. I don't, like you said, you don't realize consistency is gone until it's gone. And I would say a number of 
feedback from various brand partners that maybe we parted ways because the pricing couldn't work out or because the delivery didn't work out. But why are they coming back? Why is that relationship, you know, reinvigorated after whatever reasons? And consistently it's they come back and they're like, you guys are consistent. You know, they can sleep at night. That's why I'm, I'm a big proponent of, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I'm budget conscious too. Everyone needs to be when you run your own, like you, when you run a business, you run a budget, you have to be budget conscious. Having said that, it's about putting the value and the investment in the right places. What's an example of the right place for you? Hey, this is where we decided, this is where I knew we needed to put in the investment. This was the right place for us. What did that look like? I would say the quality, like just the whether or not how we feel. Like one of the things we do at our factory, which is standard, and my dad actually pioneered this in the 80s and people thought he was crazy and they still do, but that's my dad. And that's, I'm a byproduct of him is, is we take every dye lot of fabric, we unroll the fabric, wash and dry it, re-roll it before we cut and sew. What is the purpose of that? Because knits are quite fluid. So we wanna be able to control. There's so many factors. There's so many variables. How do we best streamline and manage the variables? So that's something that we've consistently done and we consistently invest in the product. I often say a t-shirt's a t-shirt's a t-shirt. What makes a $2 t-shirt any different than the $200 t-shirt above and beyond the branding? There's gotta be a baseline on the common denominator of what it is and that and, and that feeling and the, the experience you get from it. And so I would say for us, it's investing in the back end and behind the scenes things that we do in production that people don't realize because to you, it's just a t-shirt. But why is, you know, a Redwood Classics t-shirt washed a thousand times 10 years later, still one of your favorite t-shirts versus maybe a, you know, a less nicer one that maybe you got and the logo and or it wasn't a concert tee. So you didn't think it was, you know, there was no emotional attachment. And it's now a reg. Like, let's be honest, how many t-shirts have you ever used as a reg, right? So I always say it's part of branding. Branding is how it makes you feel. And I think- But it's often, that experience. It's I, an experience. I really, I really like your tangible example of other people don't do this. We unroll it, wash it, put it back, and then start. Yeah. You know what I mean? And because then, and then that's an expense, right? Oh, that's yeah. an expense. That's it, an expense I, that other people aren't taking right. on, mm -hmm. but it, it shows up after X number of washes. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Perfect. Yes. Okay. My last, my last thing that I'm been the most itching to ask you about is going from the, the classic, you know, part of the industry, the family you've been in to your own line. What, what has been the biggest learnings of, you know, now you, now you've got your own label instead of just other people's. Oh, that's a good question. Wow, you're really asking Spe me all these questions I never really thought of. I like it. <laughs> but I guess specifically the marketing of, you know, like you could obviously produce the product mm -hmm. when it comes to getting people to want it from you. What worked? I think from the very beginning, just having a reason to exist. You know, when we came to market, our reason is we want to continue to give back to this amazing country that has given us so much. In addition to ourselves being immigrants, you know, and we're from Hong Kong. And as you know, China took back Hong Kong as a British colony in 1997. Through that journey, there was a number of, of makers that we onboarded that were new immigrants to Canada because of their experience. And, and Hong Kong used to be a textile hub years ago, right? So I think about that and my culture and the reason why we existed. And the reason 
you know, Redwood Classics, we even want to come to the marketplace is our brand purpose, our brand reasoning is to give back and, and realized, you know, over the years now, as I've become more involved in the diversity and inclusion spaces and supplier diversity, oh, what this means is our brand and our business is actually making a social impact as well, a socioeconomic how, impact by ways of onboarding new immigrants, by ways of, you know, as new immigrants, you come to Canada or you come to North America. And I always said this is the biggest challenge, right? And it it's hard because you're applying for a new job, you're a new immigrant, you don't understand the culture, and I'm empathetic towards it because my family experienced it and I lived alongside with them. And you apply for a job and say, they say, you have great experience. Oh, but you don't have North American experience. Well, how does one have North American experience if we as corporations or business owners do not allow and provide that opportunity for them to build experiences? Well, and I think like what what a great, you know, even if somebody doesn't end up with you forever, what a great stepping stool, right? Oh, yeah. And that's one of the first things I I say is is you're not going to be here forever. Like typically now I get they my team, even though I'm not the hiring manager for as we're growing is often the hiring manager will ask, do you mind, you know, that's more administration, not necessarily from a production standpoint, they would ask me to to meet the individual, and and I always say this is you're you're not going to be with us forever. It'll be our like I'll be forever grateful if you are, but the reality is is not necessarily going to be true. So in this journey that you're here alongside with us, how can we help each other? How can I learn from you? How can my business better as a result of your involvement? And have that feedback and vice versa. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and yeah. say we're successful at it. We're still working at it, but you know, yeah. it's that mindset. No. And I, I feel like I have like the tiniest glimpse into that because, you know, as a little kid, we moved all over, ended up in Edmonton for elementary school. And then as a 10 year old, we moved to the little farm town that my mom grew up in and her family been in for hundred years since the late 1800s, just like an hour over the U S Canadian border in Southern Alberta. Right. Right. And where in, in Sherwood Park outside Edmonton, I had kids in my class that were like first generation from Saudi Arabia, from Nigeria. I mean, it's very, I think a lot of people who who aren't familiar don't realize just how like incredibly ethnically diverse Edmonton is specifically. Yes, I agree. Um, Unless you go there and then you're like, oh. Yeah, right. My dad, <laughs> yeah. my dad's doctor is from Egypt. His coworker at the, you know, he worked for the provincial government. It's from Ukraine. Right. Anyways. Well, we moved to Southern Alberta and rural, I mean, it's like 3000 people, right? 3,500 people from city of a million. Okay. And, and it's like, it's mostly Caucasian and tons and tons of families from uh, China and Japan. And I did competitive judo. So yeah, I did competitive judo with them. My brother and I for years and years and bus, you know, bus trips all over to Saskatchewan and wherever. And so like, by the way, Lethbridge has got some of the best, Lethbridge, Alberta people has got some of the best Chinese food in continental North America. And I say that having had Chinese food in China, this is still, it's Americanized, but it's still good. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's off the charts. So, and like, quite frankly, some of the kids I was fighting in judo, their dads owned some of these restaurants or their uncle or what, you know, anyways. But I got this little glimpse into that world. And like some of those kids were just some of our very best friends. You know what I mean? And I, I'm back home sometimes in Canada for first of July or, or 
or Christmas and like, you'll see him in the mall or something, come give you big hugs, even though you haven't seen him in years and years, you know? And so I know it's not to the same degree, but I feel like I got like a little bit of a glimpse into that community. Yes, absolutely. And I I think, I don't know, going back to your original question is what made Redwood Classics, you know, how did we have our own factory brand and all of that? I think just from the very beginning, we've always been very honest in terms of why we believe we exist. And then also we've been, we, we've been giving back in the sense where we want to inspire others and other brands to just kind of dig within yourself to find the reason why you exist and how can you add value to the world. And so, and maybe this can be my last question, but my question is the people who don't know you, people don't know your story. They don't know anything about you. They're, they're walking through the mall. They're at whatever relo- retail location and they see your stuff or they're mm-hmm. flipping through the whatever magazine or, or wherever you guys are getting the word out. What did your, what does your messaging look like? How are you, how are you getting that out there? The messaging continues to be made in Canada. That's a big thing. I think in our tagline, it's three generations of textile excellence in our logo made in Canada is just incorporated altogether. I would say this, I think fellow Canadians, and I hate to point that out, but I find that sometimes fellow Canadians aren't necessarily recognizing the value of made in Canada and the reputation Canada has as a global brand. And that's one approach I've always taken. Just look at our trade agreements. I mean, Canada has 14 active trade agreements around the world. We're the only G7 country that has trade agreements with all the other G7 countries. Like that just tells you how we're poised and and the mindset. See, being polite pays off. Being polite pays off. (laughs) Being polite definitely pays off. Being nice. (laughs) You know what? I'll say this because my dad's American. So I'm, I'm technically an American born abroad, but because I was born in Canada, I, I got You're Canadian Canada. citizenship too. It's been great for like going back for college and snowboarding. Yeah, and back absolutely. And, and I, I love the U S for entrepreneurial, like entrepreneurial opportunity. I, I really think it's pretty unrivaled of you can start with next to nothing. And there's, there's so much just, there's just so much in favor of the entrepreneur right? Yes. Yes. But Canadians are funnier. Like <laughs> Americans work really hard and they like, you're like, I can't, I couldn't believe this when I got there. They work between Christmas and New Year's. Like anybody is getting anything done, people. You're all sitting. Anyways. Okay. Canada, like my wife, so my wife grew up in LA, moved her home to Calgary for a few years when we were running a private equity fund. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, everybody here just has a good time. Like everybody enjoys life. Like these people are great to be around, which is obviously a mass overgeneralization, but, but compared to how she grew up and you think about whether it's your industry, the energy industry, anywhere, you find Canadians all over the world, like to a degree that, that per capita, there are way more Canadians doing business in other countries that are well-respected. And, and it is like a mutually two-way thing that, you know, I, I I am very patriotic about being American, but I've been in certain countries where I don't hesitate to say I'm here from Canada. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because of yes. how they're going to treat me. Right? Yes. Yes. I've heard of that as well. I've heard of that as well, where sometimes you just want to make sure you're wearing that really big branded Canadian flag somewhere on a backpack or on your luggage or on your hoodie, because you want to make sure people know that you are Canadian. For whatever reason. And I think as I as I aged and, and I got to see a little bit more of those situations, they're not always pleasant situations that I realized why uh, people would want to just come back to Canada. Like, I mean, think about all this international talent we have in different industries, in particular entertainment, like Bieber, 
proudly Canadian. Drake, proudly Canadian. We always come back to our Canadian <laughs> Ryan roots. Gosling, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. There's yeah. so many of the best comedians, right? Yeah. But um, here's the sad part. How come we weren't recognized when we were back home? We have to have success outside of our own country to be appreciated. And then, and yeah. That, that, my friend, that is something that I hope we can move forward and work on as Canadians. So if there's any Canadians listening, please support your own. Probably just my mom. That's probably the only one. Um, well, listen, this has been great. Congratulations on all the success. Oh, thank uh, you. Where should people be connecting with you? Where should people be checking out your company? Okay. So we're on our website is redwoodclassics.net, classics with an S.net, N E T. We're also very visible on social. So it's at Redwood Classics on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on IG, Instagram, and myself. It's just Kathy with a K, Chang, C H E N G, across all those channels as well. Always happy to connect, especially if there's fellow Canadians out there. And let's let's work together to make this world a better place, however utopian that thought process is. Uh, I love it. Well, this has been fun. Thanks. Thanks for making the time to do it. Jess, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure and such an honor. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everyone.